0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Chronicles 13. 2 Chronicles 13. Now, the the context for this passage is that the nation of Israel is in turmoil. And after Solomon has died, Solomon being David's son, Solomon died at the end of his life. He was not faithful to the Lord. He had Uh, followed strange gods from the thousand women that he had in his palace. And he was not faithful, even though he had built the temple and all that. So Solomon has failed. His son, Rehoboam, uh, who is pretty much a worthless excuse for a leader, uh, has taken over. And initially, he kind of walks with the Lord. But after a couple years, he really falters. And a man named Jeroboam, Comes along and tries to kind of encourage him and assist him. And when Rehoboam makes some very poor decisions that are very hard on the people, uh, Jeroboam kind of comes alongside and says, "Look, brother, don't don't do that. Like, let's let's take a different tack here and, and take the nation in a different direction." And Rehoboam, instead of taking that counsel, doubles down. And Jeroboam starts to get disenchanted and starts to um, kind of stir up the people and get a following behind himself. And eventually that leads to him kind of declaring, look, we're going to break away. We're going to take 10 tribes and we're going to take the northern half of the kingdom and I'm going to be king. And that nation becomes the nation of Israel. The southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, where Jerusalem was, then became the nation of Judah. And Rehoboam was the king of Judah and Jeroboam was the king of Israel. Now, as that's happening, Jeroboam starts to become more evil. And he starts to get very full of himself because he wants power and he kind of lusts for power and we know that power corrupts, right? So Jeroboam's perfect example of how power corrupts. He gets very full of himself and he starts to um, take the nation in a direction spiritually that it never should have gone. And at the end... Really, of all of this, in the passage we're going to study this morning, chapter 13, Jeroboam incites a civil war. Now, it's really amazing to me, as I was studying this passage this week, how quickly things got out of hand spiritually. How quickly the nation wandered away from the Lord, just two generations removed from David. David loved the Lord. David served the Lord. David had a heart for the Lord. David was, was blessed by the Lord in very unique ways. God had established an eternal covenant with David. He said, your kingdom's going to be forever. Um, David was, was a powerful king, but not just in terms of military strength or his leadership. He was a powerful king because he walked so closely with the Lord that God just showed him favor. And now we're two generations away from David. David was the one who, who now even thousands and thousands of years later, people still study his life. Books have been written about him. People name their kids after him. We've got a couple Davids in the room. I don't know if that's why your parents name you David, but it's pretty good reason. David was a man of God. And now you've got his bumbling grandson, Rehoboam, who who doesn't really know what he's doing, has kind of wandered away from the Lord himself. And now you've got Jeroboam, and and Jeroboam has nothing to do with God. It's interesting how uh, a legacy and how uh, uh, a reputation carries on uh, for generations based on whether or not you're following the Lord. Nobody's naming their kid Rehoboam, right? We have any Rehoboams in the room? I haven't met any. The, the city of Jerusalem's not called the city of Jeroboam. He was a strong leader. He was effective. He, he matched up all the leadership books that tell you what you're supposed to do as a leader. But his biggest failure as a leader is he didn't walk with the Lord. And I don't care how strong a leader you are. If you don't walk with the Lord, you're a failure. So you've got these two guys, you've got the two nations that are, now, that are now separated. Eventually they're going to be taken into captivity separately and not restored in any way because of the sins of these men. And Israel today, even today, 2017, is fractured uh, nationally, geographically, and, and spiritually, all going back to these two guys. So you've got thousands of years of history all determined by what a couple people did. If they had followed the path of David... You would have had a nation that thrived. You would have had a nation that would have been blessed. You had a nation that God would have put his hand on and established his plan and never sent to Assyria and Babylon. You would have a nation that today wouldn't be struggling for control of Jerusalem, that would be fighting the Palestinians, that would be getting bombed by the Arabs. You wouldn't have that because Israel did what it was supposed to do, but it didn't. So we have to really constantly think, about the long-term ramifications of sin. And we, we can't underestimate the value of living faithfully for the Lord and how that impacts people for generations. That's why I love to study the kings because there's such a direct cause and effect it's it's actually as you read it it's actually visible you can you can see it you can visualize what's happening here when a king allows idols when a king takes the nation in the wrong direction spiritually and even promotes spiritual rebellion god takes his hand off god disciplines god causes something to happen like an enemy army to come in or some kind of disease to take over or maybe even both be, because there's going to be a reaction to rebelling against him. But when a king follows the Lord, and there were few, none in Israel after David, only about six or seven in Judah after David. So so when you find that rare king that that actually follows the Lord, God blesses them. God helps them. God, God restores the nation. And as the leader brings them to a place of spiritual revival, the hand of the Lord is upon them. Now, after Rehoboam dies, Jeroboam's been in power for a couple decades, and Rehoboam dies. And his son, Abijah, this is chapter 13, verse 1, Abijah becomes king. Now, Abijah was not a righteous king by any stretch. In fact, if you look at the parallel passage, we won't, in in 1 Kings 15, the Holy Spirit writes that Abijah walked in all the sins of his father, Rehoboam, which he had committed before him, And Abijah's heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his forefather David. But for David's sake, listen now, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Again, evidence of how the Lord treats and how the Lord blesses those who are righteous. Abide you did follow the Lord and according to the path that we see and the pattern that we see that meant that God was going to take away his kingdom and discipline him. But it says in 1 Kings 15 that because of David's righteousness, that God was willing to hold back a little bit in terms of how he dealt with Abijah because he promised David there's going to be a covenant with you. You're going to have a kingdom established forever. You're always going to have a line. uh, In fact, Jesus even came out of the line of David. You're always going to have a kingdom in Israel. So David, for your sake, even though you've passed away years before, for your sake, I'm not going to destroy Abijah. I'm going to allow him to have some success just because I promised you. That's a powerful legacy. Now, Abijah, at his start, did make some good decisions. And he had some spiritual clarity that we want to focus on this morning because it shows the importance of being on the right side of the battle. I, I was so glad that we sang the stand last because that really fits into what we're studying this morning. Um, we, we are constantly referring to or preaching about or studying the fact that we're in the middle of a spiritual battle. And we are, right? It's being waged all around us between heaven and earth. That won't stop until the enemy's thrown in the lake of fire. But there's also a spiritual battle taking place here on earth. Uh, within our culture and if you uh, you know we 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 can see that so obviously I mean look at any news report read any newspaper uh, just just anything related to the news you see this constant spiritual battle this constant conflict between the Lord and everybody else and it's easy to get weary it's easy to get discouraged. I, I've almost just stopped watching the news. I used to read two newspapers a day, watch the news, find out what's going on. I almost can't even do it anymore because I get uh, the, the channel on, and five people are screaming at each other, and nobody agrees, and everybody's trying to make a fool of themselves, and, and you just, you just kind of get discouraged, right? Like, uh, it'll be on the background. I'm like, I can't do it. Turn it off. Turn on anything. Show me, show me people making food. I don't know. I just can't do this. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's, it's discouraging. It's not that I want to be blind to what's going on in the, in the world. But, but when you see the warfare being waged before you viscerally, you, you, you kind of get a little bit overwhelmed. Now the Lord knows this. Which is why he warns us about it. It's why, what are you holding in your hand? It's why he gave us this, right? to teach us about it, to tell us what it's going to look like. It's why we do this, because the body of believers encourages each other. At the end, we're going to have where you can come up and pray with somebody. Listen, you're discouraged this morning, kind of disheartened. You walk in feeling overwhelmed. That's why the body meets, so we can pray for you. You can walk up to anybody and say, listen, I'm struggling. Can you pray for me? And I hope and pray that that person says, absolutely, let's pray right now. Let's pray right now. Hey, hey, come on over here. This person needs prayer. The body is there to support each other and encourage each other. It's why God gives us a renewed mind. So we don't have to think that way. We can think with clarity and with spiritual confidence and with truth. It's why he gives us and constantly points back at Jesus to remind us of the victory that's ours. It's why he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to keep standing firm, to keep pressing on. And the Bible says things like, don't be weary in well-doing and remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. But listen, hearing those truths doesn't do much good if we're on the wrong side of the fight, does it? If you're on the wrong side to say, well, the battle belongs to the Lord, well, yeah, you're fighting against Him right now. Well, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, but you're not putting on any of the weapons that God gives you of defense and of power. Well, well, don't be weary in well-doing. Well, how can we not be weary if we're not doing the right thing? The reason this passage, and we're going to read it in a second, the reason this passage is so important for us to study is because it shows us a very clear distinction between the two sides. And let's be clear one more time. There are only two sides. Either you and I are standing for the Lord, wearing his colors, wearing his name, completely loyal to his cause, defending him, yielding to his leading and his provision, and and being unwavering in our commitment. Either we're on that side or we're on the side of the enemy. And we're standing against the Lord and resisting Him on any number of levels, unwilling to fully trust Him, unwilling to fully obey Him, unwilling to fully serve Him. Those are the choices. And this choice has been, has been uh, established a number of different times in Scripture. And I don't want to bore you with this, but I was amazed as I researched this how many times in Scripture God says, choose. Pick a side, and let me, if you take notes, just write down the references, and you can look at them later, but Moses tells the people to pick a side in Exodus 26, after they'd built the golden calf, you know that, they came down, he came down from Sinai with the tablets, and people are dancing naked, and they're dancing before the golden calf and saying, this is who brought us out of Egypt. He says at that point, you've got to pick a side. In number 16, some men try to come up against Moses and try to usurp his authority and incite the people to remove him. And Moses says, again, you've got to choose who you're going to serve. Not speaking of himself, he's talking about the Lord there. In Deuteronomy 30, the Israelites are called to choose between life or death. And that's determined by whether or not they're willing to obey God's word. In Joshua 24, after they've gone into land, Joshua tells the people, you've got to decide who you're going to fear, the gods of Egypt or the Lord? At Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18, Elijah stands before the people, the only one standing for the Lord, with hundreds of prophets of Baal and Ahab and Jezebel, the evil king and queen. And he says, you've got to choose this day, right now, not tomorrow, not the next day. You've got to choose right now who you're going to serve, God or Baal. In Proverbs, Solomon says, you need to choose the path of righteousness and wisdom or the path of of folly. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says to the believers, you're you're starting to listen to these false apostles that are coming in, that are are denying the word of God and saying, you can live however you want and, and still follow the Lord. So you've got to choose. Are you going to follow them or are you going to follow the authentic apostles like myself who are teaching you the whole counsel of God? Take your pick. Even Jesus himself in Matthew 12 says, if you're not with me, you're against me. So all throughout Scripture, from Moses to Paul, all throughout Scripture, God sends the same message. There are two sides. Choose which one. You've you've got to make your pick. Now, important to notice, there's no middle ground. And that makes sense because standing in the middle of two armies who are at war isn't a good place to be, right? You ever seen the old Civil War movies? where you've got the blue on one side and you got the gray on the other and they're like 100 yards apart and everybody's like, and they've got their muskets and their rifles and the, and the generals who are, you know, back in the back where they're not going to hit by a stray bullet, they're back in the back on their horses going, ready, aim, fire! And, and they're like right here and dropping, you know, just as they're getting hit. You wouldn't want to go stand right in between that and go, let's see if we can negotiate a little truce here, guys. You're on one side, you're on the other. I think we could, I think we can find some middle ground here. Nope, you're gonna get shot. You don't want to stand between two boxers that are going at it. I did a a little uh, fun thing, and you can go on YouTube a little fun thing the other night where I looked at times when referees have gotten hit by boxers, mostly accidentally, but a couple times the boxers just boom, just clubbed the referee. One guy got I mean he got hit so hard he just went like this fell into the ropes they got a new referee and he got hit around later When two guys are going at it in the ring you don't want to step in the middle of that right because there's no middle ground it's a fight it's a battle same thing holds true spiritually The Lord says there's no there's no standing in the middle choose a side And if it was just once, we could rationalize it away. But it's how many times? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times in Scripture that I found, there may be more, where God says definitively, pick. You standing for me? You standing for the enemy? You and I have to choose. Are we standing for the king, armed with the weapons of warfare that he's given us, confident in his victory, or are we on the other side? Well, if we look at the text, finally get to it. That's like over half the sermon. If you look at the text, there's a spiritual principle that the Holy Spirit's establishing for us here. Look at verses 1 to 3, 2 Chronicles 13. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, okay, we know who that is, king of Israel. Abijah, Rehoboam's son, Solomon's grandson, David's great-grandson, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Machai, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now, here's the issue, the whole issue between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. There was a war between Abijah, who's now Rehoboam's son, and Jeroboam. Abijah began the battle, numbers are important, with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 chosen men. While Rehoboam drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 chosen men, Who were valiant warriors. Now, just to be clear, let's get our numbers right, okay? Abijah is outnumbered two to one. He's also a new king. He's only been in power three years, so he hasn't really had a lot of time to get the heart of the nation and it establishes leadership style. Jeroboam, on the other hand, has been the king for 21 years. And he's got the people behind him. He's an established leader. He knows what he's doing. He's got a humongous army. He's ready to go. So, so Abijah is, is, is understaffed and he's, and he's not ready. Okay. Now go to verse 4. Then Abijah stood on Mount Zer- Zem-aram, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, listen to me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule of Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, now he's speaking to Jeroboam's army, but he's talking about the king. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his master. And worthless men gathered around him, scoundrels, who proved too strong for Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, which is his dad he's talking about when he was young and timid and could not hold his own against them. So now, verse 8, you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord through the sons of David, being a great multitude and having with you the golden calves which Jeroboam made for gods for you. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made yourselves priests? Like the peoples of other lands, whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams, even he may become a priest of what are no gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God. We've not forsaken him, and the sons of Aaron are ministering to the Lord as priests, and the Levites attend to their work. Every morning and evening they burn to the Lord burnt offerings and fragrant incense, and the showbread set on the clean table, and the golden lampstand with its lamps is ready to light every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Now behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with the signal trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord of your fathers, for you will not succeed. Now it's interesting how Abijah takes a direct approach in verse 4. He goes right to the armies of Israel, he stands on top of a mountain, and he calls out to them. But his appeal, notice, is not my army's better than your army. My army's better trained. We've got better weapons. We've moved into the hills in a certain way. So we have a tactical advantage. He doesn't even trash talk Jeroboam. Ah, he's a lousy leader. How could you guys follow him? He doesn't do any of that. Think about what this would look like in the political discourse if we had a civil war in America right now. Do, do you think the appeal would be anything civil at all? Look at what Abijah does. His appeal is purely spiritual. In verse 5, he says, hey guys, we have a covenant that God made with David. And he said he would establish the throne forever. And all of us, you and Judah, you and Israel, we all fall under that covenant. Then he says in verse 6, Jeroboam, by the way, David's grandson here talking, I want to remind you, Jeroboam, you've rebelled against the Lord, you've ruined the legacy of David, you've surrounded yourself with worthless men who are the same man that took advantage of my father because he was weak. Then he says in verse, I believe it's verse, uh, let me look at it real quick, find it, verse 8. He says, and, and, and you've brought along golden calves to the battle, which Jeroboam made for you for gods, and you've brought them along thinking that that will help you and give you protection. Now, any time you see in Scripture the words golden calves, that should be a trigger, right? Any Jew should associate that with failure and rebellion and discipline and wandering in the wilderness because it was the golden calves that they built at Sinai where God said, all right, enough already. I'm tired of putting up with this. I'm tired of your rebellion. You're going to wander for 40 years because I told you, first and second commandments, have no other gods before me and don't make any graven images. So he deals with that. Then look at verse 9. He says, you guys are culpable. Jeroboam drove out the true priests. He removed the Levites. Anybody and his dog can become a priest at this point. All you got to do is bring a bull or or some sheep to the altar and declare that you're a priest and you can be a priest. What what a travesty that is to the law. And before he explains what a contrast it is, look back at verse 8. One phrase I want you to see. He says, now you intend... To resist the kingdom of God. In other words, men of Israel, don't see this as anything other than exactly what it is. You are pushing back and fighting against the Lord himself. You know, one of the great deceptions of the enemy is to persuade us that selfishness and sin isn't really opposition to the Lord. It's just a temporary wandering away. And then what we can do is we can go back and we can confess and we can act all sorry. And because God is so gracious, and he is, how many know God's way more gracious than he should be? And because God's so gracious that when I fail for the 9,455th time that I can go back to God, Lord, I'm so sorry, I, would, I shouldn't have done that, I confess, please cleanse me, and God will forgive because he promises to, give, to forgive. And, and we get to that place where we think, well, you know what? This is a pretty good deal. I'll just cover my tracks spiritually, and when I kind of wander, I'll, I'll go back and just kind of say I'm sorry and get things straightened out. Paul calls that an abuse of grace. He says, how dare we think that just because God's grace is so wonderful that we can continue to sin so that his grace would abound? He says, may it never be. See, one of the reasons it's so dangerous is it conditions our mind to view sin as acceptable for a believer. But as the Spirit makes real clear through Abijah here, He says, nope, that's not how it works. And just like the Israelites were under the Davidic covenant, now you and I as believers are under the new covenant, And the new covenant is what Jesus established with his own blood. You remember at the Last Supper, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, by dying, by taking your sin, by shedding your blood, this is now going to be the final payment for sin. There's nothing after this. This is it. So this is the final payment for sin. And if you trust me and I become your savior, now we're in covenant with each other. And the new covenant is your sins are washed away and I become your savior and you get a new heart and a new mind and a new nature and your mind forever. That's the new covenant. And as a believer, you and I live under the new covenant. We shouldn't have to be reminded of that, right? So Abijah says, hey, listen, guys, come on. We all lived under David. He goes back. We're all related to David. And God made a covenant with David. We need to listen to that. Christians, so much more we need to hear. We live under the new covenant. There should be no toleration of wandering. Certainly not a rationalization that it's okay because I'll just go back and say I'm sorry. We have to decide on a daily basis whether or not the false idols are better than the Lord or whether the Lord is best. And look at how Elijah, verse 10, describes this. He says, as for us, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. Isn't that such an awesome statement? How many agree that that should be the statement of our lives every second of every day? The Lord is our God, and we will not forsake Him. That that better be the constant mission of this church until Jesus comes back. That the Lord is our God, and we will not forsake Him. And look at how Abijah describes them doing it. He says, "We're obeying the Lord." There's a little bit a little bit of sarcasm here, like you guys. Anybody can be a priest of anybody that's not a God. But, but we're actually using the Levites like God told us to. And the Levites are still preparing the temple every day. And we're giving offerings to him. And we're sacrificing to him. And we're serving him. Because that's what you do when you love the Lord. That's what you do when you're following the Lord. You're, you're, you're giving, our giving, excuse me, and our ministry gifts are, are proof of our love not well we need nursery workers and please give to the offering so we can make budget i don't i don't want to i don't want to ever say those things it should be we don't need to be reminded to give because we love the Lord. Of course we're going to give this morning. We need people to serve. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll step up. I'll serve. I'm not guilt tripping here. Please hear me. But, but I'm going to serve because I love the Lord. It, it's just natural. Of course I'm going to do that. We've got people missing the service today so they can go set up the picnic. I don't want them to miss the service, but that's their service today. That's what they're doing to honor the Lord and to help the congregation so that we can go and have a great time of fellowship. I want you to thank them because they're sacrificing today. There are people standing holding babies, changing diapers, teaching little kids. Why are they doing that? They'd rather be in here probably, but they're doing it because it has unto the Lord. Some of you sacrificed this morning. You gave more than you were comfortable with. You don't know where the next bill's coming from, but you know that as we honor the Lord, the Lord honors us. See, it's all about showing our love. And I want you to look at verse 12 because Abijah gets down to the heart of it. This is, I think, a real appeal from his heart in verse 12. I don't think he's being arrogant or mocking them or anything. I think his heart's breaking. And in verse 12, notice what he says. Please do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers Why? Read it with me. For you will not succeed. This is such an important spiritual principle. The Lord laid this in my heart while I was driving this week. If you are at a fellowship with the Lord and you are trying to fight the battle in your own strength, you are essentially weaponless. If you're not walking with the Lord and you're in that spiritual conflict and you feel it, you're trying to bear down and buckle down, figure out a way out, you are essentially walking into the middle of the battle without a shield, without a gun, without a knife, without anything. And I want to tell you, in love, you will not win. No matter how how much you rationalize it and strategize it and ignore the facts, You will not win. How do I know that? Well, I read verse 13. So Jeroboam, after he hears Abijah's little speech, sets up an ambush to come from the rear. So Israel was in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. When Judah turned around, behold, they were attacked both front and rear. Stop right there. Jeroboam is a real clever little strategist. Hey, we've got double the troops, so think about this, generals. We can put all of, half of our troops in the front, that equals what they have, 400,000 to 400,000, we'll, we'll, we'll go straight on, and they're going to think that's our whole army, but we've got them full, don't we? Send around half the troops to the back, so when they see us, and they're intimidated, and they turn to run, we got a whole other army behind them. And it's actually a very good strategy, except he doesn't take into account how Judah defends itself. Look at the end of verse 14. So Judah cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets. and Then the men of Judah raised the war cry. And when the men of Judah raised the war cry, then it was that God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. When the sons of Israel fled before Judah, God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people defeated them with a great slaughter so that 500,000 chosen men of Israel fell slain. Then the sons of Israel were subdued at that time, and the sons of Judah conquered because they trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers. Abijah pursued Jeroboam, captured him with several cities: Bethel and its villages, Jeshanah with its villages, and Ephron with its villages. Jeroboam, verse twenty, did not again recover strength in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. Jeroboam's got a brilliant tactical military strategy, as old as the hills. We'll put front and back, and we'll trap them, because there are mountains on either side. They'll be stuck in the funnel. They won't have any way out. And it's brilliant, except for the fact that Judah doesn't obey. They turn around, and they look, and they see an ambush. And instead of saying, all right, guys, strapping on now. we got to really fight. We're out two to one. Instead, they do the best thing that you can do and I can do in spiritual warfare. They cry out to the Lord. And notice not only how the Lord gives them victory, but notice how it fills them with confidence where they should have been terrified and emotionally and physically defeated. Instead, they raise a war cry and God routs the enemy. Now, this is such, we're, we're almost done. This is such a powerful and important spiritual truth that will give us comfort and strength this morning and every day. Because no matter what the battle, no matter how lost the cause seems, the battle is the Lord's. And he will come to the defense of his people. We know that's true. We know that he always wins the victory. But I mean, I'm telling you, what really stood out to me this week is that when we trust in him and when we call on him in the battle, that mindset of victory now starts to invade our heart and mind. Because it wasn't just all right, we're going to pray. The Lord will take care of it. It's going to be great. And, and you know, just guys just kind of stand here and wait because God's done this before and he'll do it again. No, it's, it's, it's more than that. There's an important detail the Holy Spirit gives us because he says as this happened, as they cried out, what did they do? They raised a war cry. Oh, what does that tell us? It tells us that instead of being worn down and disheartened and overwhelmed, they started to rejoice. Oh, if we can rejoice in spiritual warfare, that's all of it. They raise a battle cry. They say we're going to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You know, James tells us that the trying of our faith is designed to make us complete. And Hebrews says, don't cast away your confidence because the Lord will richly reward it. So in every battle we can trust the Lord no matter what and when we stand for him, his promises will be fulfilled and when we boldly cry to him for help, he will give us such confidence and such peace and such strength that we'll be able to raise a war cry and say, I'm ready. And That's what happens here. Let's finish. The end of the battle, what we just read, it's a It's a spiritual metaphor for the battle that we face every day. The Lord gives complete victory. There's no denying. There's no equivocation. There's no, well, they kind of gain some advantage. It is complete and utter victory to the extent, and this blew me away, that half a million soldiers who rejected him are killed. Now, that number staggered my mind this week. On 9-11, the greatest catastrophe in American history in one day, 2,997 people were killed. In Vietnam, which was a horrible war, 58,000 U.S. troops were killed. In World War II, we lost 416,000 soldiers. Combined, all three of those still don't equal what died in one day here in 1 Chronicles 13. Half a million people, which is probably the city of Milwaukee, in one day, imagine the carnage. It wasn't even a fair fight. There there was no question about it, because the two armies didn't have equal power, right? But not the way we would think. We would look at the numbers and go, 800,000 against 400,000, somebody's going to lose, and it's not going to be the 800,000. But here's the thing, that's not how spiritual battle works. The cause of victory, look at one more verse, verse 18. The cause of victory was very clear and very simple. The sons of Judah conquered, why? Because they trusted in the Lord. The enemy was bigger, the enemy had more people, the enemy had seemingly more confidence, but they were weaker and ineffective because they were fighting against the Lord. Listen, what battle are you in right now? What, where, where do you need the Lord to be conqueror in your life? That The power in our lives can be so strong and God's power working in us and through us can be so wonderful that Jesus says, in all things, you can be conquerors. But he doesn't stop there. In Romans it says, in all things, speaking of spiritual battle, speaking of our old bondage, in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer. I've always heard uh, the word, uh, the, the phrase, because I grew up with the King James, you are more than conquerors through Christ, right? Everybody know that verse? But, but the real meaning is not just, well, you're conquerors, you're a, little bit, you're a little bit more than conquerors. It's stronger than that. He says, you will overwhelmingly conquer. I would say half a million soldiers dying is overwhelmingly conquering, right? You will overwhelmingly conquer. Paul Rhodes, when you trust me in the middle of a spiritual warfare, when you cry out to me, when you look to me for help, when you don't try to do it on your own, but you trust me, I'm promising you, you will overwhelmingly conquer. I don't know about you, but I need that encouragement today. Because if you're in the middle of a battle right now, And you will be all the time. God promises. He promises. He promises. That you and I can overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. Because it's not just I'm going to make you conquer. The last five words of that verse are so important. He says, you will overwhelmingly conquer. Listen now. Through him who loves you. Aren't you glad for the love of God today? Aren't you glad for that? So, because He loves us, because He's already proven His faithfulness, because He's already shown His mercy, because He's already provided, He says, Listen, I'm not going to let you suffer. I'm not going to let you lose. You can be a conqueror. You can overwhelmingly conquer through me. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning, but I want to tell you, you can walk in confidence and strength through Christ.